As you're seated, you can turn in your copy of the scriptures to Revelation chapter 1. Tonight we'll do a little bit of an overview of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. But as we noted last week, the end of chapter 1 sets us up for what is to come in the letter. So I want to read both the end of chapter 1 and the first letter to Ephesus. So Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, like, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, and your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray one more time, asking God's help this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can assemble 
laying aside all other endeavors to hear from you, uh, from your word. Might our time together be profitable? May what is said is true and consistent with your word, and might it uh, hit our hearts that are open and ready to receive it and bring edification to our souls. Bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was preparing this week, I, I hit a bit of a conundrum uh, similar to what Pastor Mitch did in Romans 11, that I could have a sermon with a very long introduction and jump into the letter of Ephesus, which is what I was intending, but the material uh, grew, and so I, I decided we'll do a sermon that is an overview of these seven letters before we jump into the individual letters. And it's, it's necessary that we do this because we come to a new unit in, in the book of Revelation and we'll see that it's important we understand this not only as the individual letters, but as, as they are functioning as a unit. So we will look at that tonight. So I have four things that I want to say about the seven letters tonight and we'll jump right in. First, these seven letters speak to real, historical, local churches. You'll see behind me there's a map. These are the, these are the seven churches. Uh, on the map, you'll see that they, they sort of have a, a coherence. You'll see Patmos down here on the, on the bottom left of the screen. And so uh, these churches were real churches. These are real locations. They're not necessarily uh, an easy trade route be- between them all, but as you'll see, uh, each would be in the correct order that we have it here, from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum uh, and so forth. So you could access all of these churches if you were taking this letter or this book of Revelation around. You could access all of these, and that would be uh, the order that you would travel there. So it's, it's important to remember these are real historical local churches. They did exist. John knew them. John, as, as the tradition tells us, was a pastor in Ephesus. And so he would have been intimately acquainted with these writings and with, with these churches, I mean. And these churches would have ac- had access to one another and, 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 and probably shared a level of fellowship with one another. But it's also important, as we, we emphasize their historicity, that these are more than just individualized letters. That what we have in chapters 2 to 3 are not just uh, uh, like the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, that's just a sole letter uh, to a church. That these letters would always have been associated with one another. They were never sent separately from one another that we know of. And they're always associated with uh, the book of Revelation in its entirety. And so that's how we're going to study them, that Revelation is one book, it's, it's one literary unit that includes these letters to real historical churches. So that's our first point. Secondly, these seven letters speak to every church in every time. And we've talked about this before, that although only seven are, are represented here, that, that we said that this speaks to the whole church of Jesus Christ. And, and we know that seven is a symbolic number here of completeness, of totality. And so by zoning in on each of these churches with its own unique historical real issues, 
uh, it's saying something uh, in totality to the whole church. And so that's what we have. Why, why do we think that these letters are not just individual messages to Ephesus and to Smyrna and so forth? Well, as we noted, the function of seven in the book of Revelation uh, is a symbolic number for, for completeness. And so John chose seven to symbolize the whole church of Jesus Christ, by which these seven are representatives. Secondly, there is a refrain throughout the letters, and we read the first one here in chapter 2, verse 7, that we're told, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each letter ends with this refrain that is saying the Spirit is speaking not just to one local church, but the Spirit is speaking to the churches. And so that leads us to believe that this message is to every church, in every time. So as Pergamum was listening to the letter written to Ephesus, they were also to hear that letter and take heed uh, to the exhortations in that letter as appropriate. And so the same is true for us, that we're not a first century church in Asia Minor, but we are part of the church of Jesus Christ and and a local assembly And so as we go through these letters, it's appropriate that we must uh, take heed and listen to what is written in these letters because these letters speak to every church in every time. Thirdly, the seven letters form a key role in the whole book of Revelation. They form a key role in the whole book of Revelation. And this is an important uh, point to make here. Much of American evangelicalism has been sold on an interpretation that sees these letters as separated from the rest of the book. That in chapter 2 and 3, we have Jesus dealing with his church, and then the church disappears, and chapters 4 and beyond have nothing to do with the church. That chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are in chapters 4 through 20 or the things that will be after these things. Moreover, they apply a reading to the churches that read them in a historical way, meaning each church represents a, a historical period in church history. So the church of Ephesus is the, is the first early church. The church of Smyrna would represent the church persecuted in the second and third century, that the church in Pergamum represented the state church of Constantine and beyond, and, and so on and so forth. And so we noted that some people read the entire book of Revelation that way, and that is called the historicist approach. And so what they do is they apply that hermeneutic to chapters 2 and 3, and then they apply a futurist hermeneutic to chapters 4 and beyond. And so, but as we see, uh, so that's a mixed uh, way to interpret this book and not consistent, but there are, there are some good reasons, to, I believe, to see uh, 2 and 3 as connected with the rest of the book and must be interpreted with the rest of the book. Uh, so first, it, this, this, uh, these letters are messages to the whole church, that it's not just to one church in one period of time. Why would uh, we have these if they're irrelevant to us if Ephesus was about an early church and it has nothing to do uh, with us? 
But most important and convincing here is that the literary structure of these, of these chapters and of these letters cause us to believe that they're to be connected with the rest of the book. We talked in our Sunday school about a little bit about the structure of the book of Revelation. And Revelation is structured around a series of sevens. So there are seven letters to seven churches. There are seven seals. There are seven trumpets. There are seven bulls. And these are the central seven. And there are some interludes throughout, and there are definitely more sets of seven, but it's clear as you read this book as a whole that these seven sort of hold the book together. And so if that's how the book is structured, why would the first series of seven be unrelated to the other series of seven? And so it seems that the burden of proof would be to show how they're not connected rather than that they are connected. Secondly, Uh, from the larger structure, the individual structure of the letters make us to believe uh, that we should read these books connect, read these letters connected with the rest of uh, the book. We have to remember that Revelation is a literary masterpiece. It it, it is, its structure is intentional and, and it's, it is literarily Masterful, and so that's why I've encouraged you to read it in one setting. And the more you, you do that, the more you begin to see this bigger structure of the book, and you begin to see that John, it's not as if John is just seeing visions and sloppily copying all of these random things and sending it, that he has composed and has structured these visions in a certain way as one literary unit. So the letters are, as Greg Beale notes, the literary microcosm of the entire book's macrocosmic structure. So don't, don't stop thinking right now. We'll get this. So the individual letters, this is what he's saying, are structured similarly to the whole book of Revelation. That what we have in these letters are many patterns of the structure of the whole book of Revelation. And I think this is very fascinating. And we saw this last week. We noted that each of the letters begins with a characteristic of Christ. And we noted, and I said at the end of, of last week's sermon, that each of those characteristics of Christ come from chapter 1, connecting the introduction of these books uh, with Uh, the introduction of these letters. For instance, in tonight's letter to Ephesus, Jesus says, Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that's, we first saw that in chapter one, that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He's holding uh, the, the seven stars in his right hand. So, so the introductions of these letters are all traced back to the introduction of the book of Revelation, of chapter 1. And so secondly, when we look at the conclusion of these letters, we see that the conclusions are connected to the end of the book. So if you're in Revelation, I want us to see this and hopefully flesh this out. Look at the ending of, of our letter to Ephesus here. Chapter 2, verse 7, at the end there, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will grant 
to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now the tree of life is going to reappear in the book of Revelation at the end of the book. Chapter 22, verse 2. Let's actually look, look at that. So we see the connection here. 22, verse 2. Through the, uh, discussing the New Jerusalem through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. So, the end of, of this uh, letter it, uh, discusses the tree of life, which is discussed at the end of the book. Moving on to the end of the letter to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus says to the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. The second death appears in chapter 20, verse 14, in what is referred to as the great white throne judgment. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus promises to the church in Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and, and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Turn over to chapter 19, verse 12, where the Son of Man appears again, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We also know in, in the Jewish literature of John's day, manna is, is associated with uh, the end times, that the Son of Man was going to come and give bread from heaven. So that's all connected. Look at chapter 2, verse 26 now. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus is called the morning star at the end of the book, and, and, the, and the saints are given a kingdom at the end of the book. 3.12, we're told that the conquerors will be a pillar in the temple of my God. He'll never, uh, he shall never go out. I'll write my name on, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city my God, the new Jerusalem. We're told in chapter 21 that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And in chapter 22, Verse 4, we're told they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So uh, hopefully you see that there's a connection between how each of these letters ends and how the book of Revelation ends. So if we think about it, if the intros are connected to the early chapters of Revelation and the conclusions are connected to the conclusion of the book, then I think reasonably we can say that the bodies are somehow related. So we should read these letters not as separated from the rest of the book. As if John is dealing with the churches and then he's going to move on to something totally different and unrelated. 
So contrary to what others have asserted, based on our analysis of literary structure of the letters and this whole book, the church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere in this book. Uh, It's not disappearing and it's not absent from the rest of the book. The church is a part of whatever takes place in these chapters and and, uh, these connect us by the, the literary structure. So why, does, why, do, why are they first, then? Why the letter uh, there? So the, the churches appear first not because uh, they're unrelated to the rest of the book, but because they have preeminence to whatever uh, comes in the rest of the book. That, that temptations are coming, persecution is coming, battles are raging, and Jesus wants to speak to his church first. And so that's why we have them here. So they form a key role in the whole book of Revelation. I hope that becomes clearer as we work through this book. Next, the seven letters have an intentional macro structure. Now, by the end of the night, you're probably going to be tired of hearing about literary structure, but this book is understanding its literary structure is very important for understanding and interpreting the book as a whole. So the, the letters as a, as a macro unit, chapters 2 through 3, actually form what is called a chiasm, which you know, a, a chiasm is, if you remember your, your English class, that the outsides are related, you know, A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime, and, and so they connect uh, there. And so sometimes people like to make chiasms up wherever they, they see them, but I think that it's, it's an intentional the chiastic structure. Why? The two outside churches, Ephesus and uh, Laodicea, are in grave danger. That Jesus tells uh, Ephesus, I- I'm going to remove your lampstand. And Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, I- I'm outside knocking. It, you know, you, you are cold or you are lukewarm. You're making me nauseous. The, the, the two between that, letters two and six, are in excellent condition. We're, that is the church of Smyrna, and that is the church of Philadelphia. And then the, and churches three, four, and five are sort of middling. They're not in great shape, but, uh, they're not as bad as, as, say, Laodicea or, or beyond. So if that's the intentional structure, what, what's the interpretive significance of that? And Greg Beal once again helps us by, by taking a crack at it. He says, the significance of this is that the Christian church as a whole is perceived as being in poor condition. Since not only are the healthy churches in a minority, but the literary pattern points to this emphasis because the churches in the worst condition form the literary boundaries of the letter and the churches with serious problems form the very core of the presentation. And so usually in a chiasm, the center is, is the important. And so Beale is saying, in the outside, it's not very good news. In the inside of this chiasm, it's not very good news. And so what is, it's, it's, it's not a high statement of, of the churches in, in this literary unit. So if that's true, 
That's a sobering reality as we come to study these churches, that as Jesus analyzes his churches, and these representing all his churches, uh, very few are, are without issues. And, and that should sober us as, as a local church, that Jesus, with his eyes as a flame of fire, sees through everything. And no matter how pristine a local church may, may think it is, Jesus is saying something to us. So that should sober us as we think about how these are structured. Next, these seven letters have a shared microstructure. Have a shared microstructure. And what I mean by that is each letter, individual letter, is structured in the same way as the others. And if you, if you read them enough, you, you would probably pick up on it. It sort of takes on uh, what is uh, uh, the letter-writing genre in, in the ancient world. It's a mixed genre of letter-writing. That the, the writings include encouragement, the writings in, include admonition and reproof. And, and that was a standard kind of genre uh, in, in John's day. But he doesn't always follow that pattern. And remember, we, we said in our Sunday school that revelation is more than one genre. It is both letter and uh, prophecy and apocalyptic literature. And so we're going to see that converge even in the letters here. That it's not just solely a letter, uh, but it's also a prophecy. And so each letter begins with a greeting to the church, to the angel of the church, It begins with an exhortation to write, and then it begins with a characteristic uh, of Christ. And as we noted, that's connected with the earlier vision. And then it begins uh, with a phrase that is unfortunately can't generally be seen in our English translation. And, And it's an important phrase, and it's unfortunate that our ESV Bibles don't actually translate it for us. And in fact, I tried to find an English Bible that translated it for us correctly, and, and I only found one. The Christian Standard Bible does translate it. So if you're using any other Bible, you're not going to be able to see this uh, tonight. But the, the, the words are tade lege, and this is important because this is, a, this is a reference to the Old Testament. And so properly translated, this, this is thus says... And as soon as I say that, your mind should go back to the Old Testament prophets and the oracles of the prophets where they say, thus says the Lord. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, tade lege appears over and over and over in these oracles. And just a few, I'll read them just for you. Jeremiah 2.2, go and proclaim uh, in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, and on goes his prophecy Amos 2.1, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four, so going on. And so John is using a language that, that resonates with Old Testament prophecy. And unfortunately, we can't quite see that in our English, but that is how every letter begins. Thus says, and then it gives us some characteristic 
of, of Jesus. And so, once again, this points out Jesus' divinity. Thus says the Lord is the Old Testament uh, way of saying it. Thus says the, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and so forth, as we go through this book. So as the prophets brought a word of judgment and salvation to the people of God in the Old Testament, so too John is bringing the word of the Lord to this church, and it is both a message of judgment and salvation. That these these churches are both like the Old Testament people of God, being admonished and encouraged in their way. And so this is where prophecy even is in these letters, and, and it's alluding to the prophetic tradition. And then uh, there is a, a body. Every letter has the body, and the body is usually a mix of encouragement and reproof. Uh, some churches only get encouragement. Some churches only get reproof, like the church of Laodicea. And then there is a conclusion of each letter, and the conclusion includes a promise to the conqueror, to the one who overcomes, or to the one who conquers. And there is also an exhortation to listen. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so uh, some of those may be switched around in, in the letters, but every, every uh, letter has that same structure. And so we'll see that as we go throughout. So those are some things that I think are helpful for us as we approach uh, the, the, the seven letters to the seven churches. So by way of application, there are two things I want to say to us uh, tonight. First, just a quote here. Uh, as I noted the, in the conclusion, uh, the promise is to the conqueror and, the, and there is an exhortation to listen. This commentator says, both the promises to the one who conquers and the exhortation to hear are in the singular Even though the messages address the whole Christian community, each individual is called to respond. So in these calls to response at the end of these books, uh, those are written in the singular, which means, okay, the church of Ephesus is, is being addressed, and so, uh, but you as individuals are responsible for taking heed to these lessons. And so as we, as we come to these seven letters, first of all, prepare your ears for hearing. Each ends with the refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This recalls, once again, the Old Testament. One passage in particular, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, like John, sees a vision of the glory of God, is given a commission, and John tells him, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So you're going to go preach, Isaiah, but the people are going to have a hard time hearing you. And the prophet Ezekiel is told the same thing. In fact, Ezekiel means God strengthens, or we could say God hardens. Meaning, Ezekiel, I'm giving you a hard head because you are going up against another group of hard-headed people. 
and you're going to preach to them, and they're not going to listen to you. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes uh, to see. Jesus would teach this way. Jesus would say, he who has ears, let him hear what, uh, let him hear. So humanity has a hearing problem. It's, it's not just your husband that has a hearing problem. We all have a hearing problem. We don't have spiritual ears to hear what God is saying. And notice the switch here that Jesus is the one that begins talking in this letter, but it says, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That it's through the Holy Spirit that the, that the illumination comes. And once again, we see the, the Trinitarian connection here of We've not only seen the Father, we've not only seen the Son, but now we see the Spirit, and He is involved in communicating God's Word. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 12, Paul writes to this church at Corinth, We have not received the spirit of the world, but we have received but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so uh, Paul is telling this congregation, you received this preaching of the cross, you received this as wisdom and power from God, you understand these spiritual truths. Why? Because you were taught by the Spirit, because God called you and opened your ears, as it were, to hear His message. But you preach this message to the natural person, and they're not going to hear. They're not going to understand that you can talk all day, but unless the Spirit of God illuminates this person, they'll never understand spiritual truth. So when we come to to these letters, particularly with this exhortation of he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, we must pray for spiritual ears to hear. We must pray that the Spirit of God would remove all hindrances and distractions and would help us to take heed to what Jesus is saying here. That Jesus has some sobering truth to tell his church in these, in these messages. That, that, as in Laodicea, they thought they were rich. They thought they were doing fine. And Jesus says, you're making me sick. And so we need to pray for ears, for hearing. We need to pray that the Spirit would illumine our eyes to see what is Jesus saying to us in these letters to his church. Secondly, Prepare to conquer. Prepare to conquer. The other repeated refrain in these uh, letters are 
to the one who conquers, and Jesus gives a promise. Or in your Bible, you might say, to the one who overcomes. And both are fine translations. I like conquer because it has a militancy to it. And this has a military background, this word. Or it can have an athletic background. And essentially it means to win in the face of obstacles. So an example from Greek history, I think, illustrates this well. And you may know this. It's told of Pheidippides that at the Battle of Marathon that uh, the Athenians won, and he, he had already done massive running. He was a runner, communicating messages, but he was told, go back to Athens and, and tell the people about this victory. And so he runs the 25 miles from Marathon to Athens, and, and coming to the city, he, he, he pronounces... Nikkei, Nikkei, or Nike, Nike, and he collapses, dead. And so our, our root word here is Nikao, and he's saying Nike. He's saying victory, victory. We, we've won. We've faced the opposition, and we won. And so, hence the origin of the marathon and the origin of our athletic wear uh, that we wear, Nike. So this, this uh, Nike, this Nikao, this conquering is, is a call to win in the face of obstacles in battle or in, or in athletics. And it's really a call to faithfulness uh, to Jesus' church that as we'll read these letters and as we'll read the rest of the book of Revelation, there's all sorts of temptations that can entice us or distract us. Temptations from false teaching. Temptations, uh, economic pressure to conform. False religion, sexual immorality. All of these things can tempt uh, God's church. And Jesus says, conquer. Overcome. So, but it, there's a paradox here because conquering doesn't mean take up your sword and fight the beast. That we're, we're, as we've seen conquering, the people that conquer sometimes lose their lives. So how do we conquer? We conquer like our Lord through self-sacrifice. And that's exactly what we see as we, later on in the book, in chapter 12, verse 11, we're told of the saints, and they have conquered him. This is Satan who has just been cast out of heaven. And how have they conquered Satan? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So Satan used his means to have these individuals executed, and you're telling me they conquered him? Yes, because they held fast to Christ. They did not give in. They did not bow to the beast. They didn't give in to his... Uh, economic pressure. They didn't bow to the harlot. They, they held fast to Christ. And so conquering is holding fast to Christ no matter the cost. And so prepare to conquer. That as we hear these exhortations, as we see our own unique temptations in our lives, we should uh, pursue faithfulness to Christ. 
So prepare yourself as we face uh, these battles to remain faithful to Christ. We will see more clearly as we go through this book that there are many threats. And in these letters that we'll study, Lord willing, in the future, Jesus confronts his church's compromise with some of these, and he calls them to conquer. He calls them to overcome. And at times, this conquering is very costly. At the the point of, of our very lives, if necessary. So prepare yourself for it. Dress yourself for action. Prepare for the battle that is raging so that you may be found faithful. Well, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness that you uh, stoop to interact with a, a, a race that has rebelled against you. We thank you that even in light of the mercy of Christ, that even though we still stumble and fall and compromise, you are still patient and merciful with us. That all of these churches should have known better in in what they were compromising with. But you, in your mercy and kindness, speak. The one you love, you reprove. We thank you for your reproof. We thank you for your discipline. And as we enter uh, these letters, might you give us ears to hear and help us to be among those who conquer. In Jesus' name, amen.